boils and ghouls, and welcome to Frightening Tales. Tonight's episode is called The Killer Episode. That's right, tonight we are talking about serial killers. I'm your host, Justin, president of the K-Ghoul Horror Film Club and investigator for Burgers. Tommy will not be joining us tonight. He is on a special investigation with Burgers. He has the lucky task of escorting the Burgers president to the Honey Island Swamp in search of the Honey Island Swamp monster. That's right, Tommy is trusted with his very own investigation and he is on his own. I feel sorry for President Ichabob. Tonight we are talking about serial killers. I'm not worried about Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac Killer, the Boston Strangler, or the Golden State Killer. Not to mention, we're not even going to talk about Hannibal Lecter. We're going to stay right here in my home state and talk about Derek Todd Lee. I have an amazing interview with Susan Mustafa, author of Bloodbath, which is the complete account of the Derek Todd Lee case. And it's a great little interview, so that's going to be coming up later. Uh, And Plus, my review of Bloodbath will be later on after the interview. Before we get into my interview with Sue Mustafa, we've got to talk about Scream 6. Scream 6 was released about two weeks ago. I saw it before I went on vacation, and I totally loved the movie. Now that the newness of the movie has wore off, I can uh, better rank this one, because as I left the theater, I would have told you this was number two of of six. But now that I've had some time to think about it and really kind of look at what happened, I'm actually going to rate this movie a little bit lower. So let's go ahead and quickly re-rank them. I'm not going to go into the full detail like I did in the original ranking, and I will tell you why Scream 6 is lower in my review of the movie. So coming in at number 6 is still Scream 4, still down at the bottom. Number 5 will be Scream 2. Number 4, Scream 6. Number 3, Scream 3. Number two, Scream 2022, and at number one, and still, and probably will always remain king of the Scream movies, Scream, the original. So why did I rank Scream 6 much lower, even though I really, really enjoyed it? Well, as I got to think about it, these are the things the movie did well. First off, it was a great film as a uh, passing the torch kind of moment. I didn't have much appreciation for the characters Sam and Tara in Scream 2022. They were kind of like, yeah, I don't really care about it. Well, Scream 6 makes me actually care about these characters. So they have elevated these characters as a way to pass the torch on to the next chapter. People were thinking that Sidney Prescott or Nev Campbell's character was going to be a hindrance to this movie. Well, the writers proved you don't need Sidney Prescott to continue the Scream franchise. So Nev Campbell bowing out for money reasons is a great example of, hey, we can write something and we can do this without her. And I think that's probably why the rumors of Nev Campbell saying she regrets not filming this movie or not starring in this movie has surfaced because you don't need her anymore. They've effectively passed the torch to Tara and Sam. Sam more than Tara. So they still keep the connection to the original movie with Tara being not Tara, with Sam being the daughter of Billy Loomis, and it just moves forward. Another great thing I liked about this movie was the shrine to Ghostface. When you realize, or when they tell you who the Ghostface shrine owner is, and here we go, I'm going to spoil this movie. And if you ever want to listen to any of my reviews, you're going to get spoiled, so I, I have no qualms with this. The shrine is revealed to be 
the are owned by Richie, one of the ghost faces from Scream 2022, which elevates that ghost face character much more. And I like it. I mean, this shrine is truly an obsessed fan of the movies, and it really brings a much more depth to Richie's character and to why he was so motivated to get Stab back on the right track, which Stab is the end movie of the movie Scream. You got to watch two and three to understand where Stab comes from. You really do. It, it would be hard for me to explain this because the movies are so meta that it, it makes me go, wow, I can't believe we thought like that in the 90s. And when you go back and look at different movies like, like Kevin Smith did, you'll see the, the whole meta part of, and I'm not talking about Facebook meta, I'm talking about the definition of meta. So here's where I disagreed with the movie. The reveal of Ghostface was uninspiring. Seeing Ghostface in action was amazing. Now, to get to where I'm about to say it was uninspiring, the movie missed a great opportunity to put five ghost faces in the film instead of the there's always two. But this time they broke the rule a little bit and went with three. But they had a chance to go with five. And it starts with opening kill, which to me was... Um, very lackadaisical. It was kind of boring and just not up to par with the originals. I mean, even even all the other opening kills were amazing. They were fun. This one was not. It was like they ran out of ideas. How do we do an opening kill and make it kind of uh, still fun and gory at the same time and keep the, uh, the appeal of the allure of Ghostface alive? Uh, it, it basically... It's a horror film professor is lured into an alley, and one of her students is Ghostface, and he kills her. Well, you get back to the Ghostface apartment, and his partner is not there. Instead, he gets a phone call from the Ghostface. Well, he doesn't know it's the Ghostface. He thinks it's his buddy at the time. Well, he, you know, now the motivation between the guy who originally killed and his friend was that they wanted to continue Richie's movie. So basically, they wanted to take the plot and the motivation from the last movie and carry it forward into there. But somebody else has the bright idea of killing those two. Now, that's where they missed the opportunity. Because as you find out, the three killers are all related to Richie. They're his father, his brother, and his sister. It's amazing, especially when they team up on Chad and start stabbing him. And then they sync together and do the, wipe, uh, the blade wipe. And it was a great killer scene. But could you imagine if... Five ghost faces were against the core four. Oh, that would that would have been made for a great movie. It would have elevated the whole peril level to a new level. And that's where they could have taken Scream. Or that's how the writers could have taken the Scream movie up to a very new level and really say, hey, look, we didn't just bend the rules. We broke the rules, recreated new rules. And that's why I say it's such a missed opportunity because you could have those five ghost faces, they were all terrifying in their own regard. They were super strong. They were there. They had the knowledge. Uh, and they were willing to go all out. In fact, the first kill of the of Scream 6, you kind of get a glimpse of somebody that could have actually been a serial killer and not some kind of revenge motivation or I want to make somebody's life miserable. Oh, no. They were set up to go all out. But instead, the writers just killed them off. And the main killer and the killers know who they are. They know they're Richie's friends. It's just missed opportunity to really, as I said, 
elevate the peril of this movie and really make it feel like the uh, main characters were in danger. Now, of course, there's some scene, I'm always going to pick out that there's some scenes they could have edited out uh, just for, for, for timing. And I'm going to tell you now, Kirby from Scream 4 is just more of a distraction. She doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. She's just there to act as a distraction uh, or a red herring, kind of like, oh, she snapped. She's the killer now. And I, I just found that she didn't lend much to the story other than maybe that, okay, it was Nev Campbell backed out. We need a legacy character who's available. And just turns out Kirby is the, the one there. Now, the other thing that I have uh, liked about this movie is that I've said it before, where you take out Nev Campbell, you know, the past the torture on there, they can now move on without a single legacy character. You don't need Courtney Cox to come back and you don't need Kirby to come back. You can let this movie stand up on its own two legs with the core four. Now, a lot of people will say that Mindy is overrated, which is the the film buff in the movie. I, I found that she provided some of the comic relief that the movie really needed. And so for people to say, oh, she's underrated or, or <clears throat> overrated, we don't need her in there. I, I completely disagree. You need the core four, especially with the way they're, they're going with the movies that they magically can run from the hospital after stab, being stabbed in the stomach. Uh, they can survive like 20 stabs at once. So I can see in like 10 years, or if a director has the cojones to do this and say, well, the reason why these four didn't get, uh, these four were never killed off was because of, uh, because it was a check in a checkbox. I, I would hope to see if a director in the future be able to make fun of that rule there, because that's probably why the four survived. Now, the other thing I really loved, and I might probably come back to this one more and more, the shrine. The shrine was full of Easter eggs. You had the TV that killed Stu Mocker. Yes, Stu Mocker is dead. <laughs> they, they referenced it and physically said it in the script. Uh, and the TV does come back to claim another life. So that's great. I love the, uh, the reuse of that. But the different ghost face costumes... Uh, I think at the point that they were saying there were 12 ghost faces at that point. So let's count them out. Billy, Stu. Yeah, we'll just say, we'll just go with 12. Well, now that you've got like 15 of them, it's pretty, pretty cool. And the way they used the masks from each one to leave something behind at the crime scene was pure genius. And there was a bunch of different things that you've never really seen throughout the other movies in this shrine that just kind of tied it all together. And, that's a lot of work and a severe devotion of a fan that I've ever seen. I will always kind of joke that fanboys really go crazy when you see some of their, their, their rooms. We'll take Dragon Ball Z, for example. You get a big Dragon Ball Z fan, and they take you throughout their room, and it is just covered in Dragon Ball Z toys, boxes, shirts, statues, anything Dragon Ball Z, and there's no room in the room for it. But yet they find a way to get out there, and it looks so cluttered. But this one was amazing, they, which has come back to Richie. Richie owned this entire warehouse, and he filled it with actual stuff from the crime scene. And, you know, he's a big stab fan, and he doesn't have, like, the, all the stab merchandise. He's got the actual stuff that inspired the stab movies. And that's crazy that somebody was able to get that away from, you know, that was even auctioned, and that was never kind of... Uh, like kept in police storage. I guess after a while, police storage has got to get rid of some things, right? And with Richie's dad being a ghost face, I could see how uh, he would have access to it. 
Now, I did say that there's three other ghost faces. I just gave one away. It was Richie's dad, who is the lead cop, which he kind of gives away who Ghostface is or kind of leads credence to, hey, this is the Ghostface here. I mean, because how can this happen and there not be anywhere near Ghostface, but yet Ghostface is there to do it? It's obvious. Uh, You just didn't, I didn't see the three coming and they that's because they faked the death of his daughter quinn which was pretty brutal in the begin with the latter scene is so so the boyfriend uh they could have developed it or just kind of left him out he really didn't serve much of a purpose other than to be a distraction or a red herring which if you watch the scream movies you already know in the second movie the boyfriend wasn't the killer and with scream six being a requel or sequel to a requel that they followed the same formula as two. So he really wasn't much of a suspect. It was just really kind of hard to believe. And then the ultimate thing that decided it for me, and I had to think back to why I ranked Scream 2 so low. And that was because of Nancy Loomis, which is Billy Loomis's mom's revenge plot and her motivation to be ghost-faced and terrorize Sydney. Well, here we go. We've got Quinn's father, Quinn's brother, Quinn's sister, all three of the ghost faces, and they all want revenge against Tara because she killed Richie. Now, they started out pretty good by creating an internet rumor that Tara framed Richie. And she had and they had turned the public against Tara in so much that they were all kind of anytime they saw her in public, they were confronting her. So they should have really let that just kind of simmer and Without the two friends that were wanting to create the movie, they, they like I said, just missed that opportunity to have the five because you could have the two friends out causing all kinds of chaos and take a little heat away from you. But that's just my two cents. But again, the revenge motivation for killing my son falls into the formula of what was in number two. So this is kind of a requel sequel. And we kind of, same rules are in place. So that's why I uh, decided that this was more ranked at number four than number two. So that concludes my review of Scream 6. Really, you get a chance to go out and go see it. It's still a great movie, despite the little rippings that I had in there. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, when the two uh, ghost face, the brother and the sister show up and they start uh, stabbing Chad, I did have a little bit of grin on my face on it because it was well synchronized. It was well, it was worth it. And finally brought some uh, level of, ooh, yes, scary movie. So I hope you like this review of Scream 6. We're going to go ahead and start our feature for tonight, and I will see you in a few minutes. With- Yes, sir. 
Jesus, does anybody have homes to do it in anymore?
Will you cut it out? Let me get it. Come on, Alan. Sweetheart. Come on. I just want to hear it. Come on. I just want to hear something. Come on, son. That's nice. Come on, you stop tickling. Alan, come on. Get in here. Alan. Come on, will you Prince were the victims, a couple of local kids. Now, I'm sorry too, Captain. Headlines like those, it's going to be Panic City in here any time now. Yeah. I don't know why we don't have headlines that big when we win one. Because of that, every nut in town's going to be on the phone claiming credit. On top of that, we'll have to check them all out. Did anybody see anything at all? Ah, uh, between the screaming and the sirens, most of the cars split. Oh, we got a few names and numbers. They've been checked out now. Let's hope somebody came up for air long enough to see something. Yeah, must have been King Kong. Yeah, one clean swipe on each victim. Well, let's take it from the top, get the owner. I checked him out. He's been living in Hawaii for about a year now. But I talked to the manager, Austin Johnson. You're really going to like him. He's what you would call your perfect asshole. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. Now, I originally was going to talk about Danny Rollins, the inspiration for Scream, and how he how much of a monster he was as a serial killer and how he was from Louisiana. But I'm going to save that for a different date because this interview with Susan Mustafa is absolutely amazing. It was a great interview. We talked everything from her becoming a true crime writer 
to the ins and outs of the Derek Todd Lee case, what made Derek Todd Lee a monster, and we even talk a little bit about the other two Baton Rouge serial killers that happened to been operating at the same time. Now, if you don't know who Susan Mustafa is, she's a true crime writer of three books, two of which are Louisiana serial killers, Derek Todd Lee and Sean Vincent Gillis. She's also featured in A&E's Butchers of the Bayou, which just released a couple weeks ago on A&E. It's a four-part, I'm sorry, it's a two-part show with four episodes. That one was amazing as well. A lot of great sound bites, a lot of great information. Uh... I, I couldn't stop watching it, and even when I fell asleep, I still had a little bit of nightmares from it just because these two guys were just absolute monsters. So let's go ahead and start our interview with Susan Mustafa. Describe how you got into writing true crime and how you got to, or who whose idea was it to write this book for Bloodbath? I was working for a magazine in Baton Rouge City Social. I was managing editor. And I had done a couple of articles on the assistant district attorney in West Baton Rouge Parish, Tony Clayton. Well, when Derek Todd Lee was captured, Tony Clayton prosecuted him for the murder of Geraldine DeSoto. And he gave me an exclusive on the trial. So I went to his office and me and Sue Israel, my co-author, and we were interviewing him about Derek Todd Lee. And he told us that all of these famous writers were calling him wanting to write this story. And he didn't know who he could trust. And I raised my hand. And he liked the article I had done on him several years before. He had it hanging up in his office, in his law <laughs> office. And um, so he contracted with me on the spot to write that book. So it was just being, I guess you could say, in the right place at the right time. And was that your... Well, you since you were writing articles on it, was that one of your, how you got started writing into true crime? Or? Yes, absolutely. We had done a few articles on safety for women while, you know, this was going on with Derek Todley because he was basically terrorizing the women of Baton Rouge. He was breaking into their homes, you know, and that's where you're supposed to feel safe. And he was breaking into their homes and, I mean, just brutally, savagely killing these women and so i was doing stories you know about safety for women i had interviewed one of his victims mother lynn marino she was the mother of pam kinnamore and um i'd done some articles with the police chief before they caught him about what was being done to catch him and so um but i had not written true crime before and so this was actually my first book it's like you don't grow up wanting to write books about serial killers i don't think yeah I, <laughs> just kind of happened I, I know from my brief stint as the crime reporter there that I, I dreaded the first time that i would have to go to write a story about that and thankfully my time there was short-lived and i never got to do that i got to see a few fires a few uh different big car accidents but other than that was for hammond relatively quiet well, I'm going to tell you, I remember one morning, Tony Clayton and I had done a segment on um, a morning show that, that particular morning, and it was um, right after the book came out, and I was in his office, and we were talking, and I was, and then I left, and I, well, I was getting into my vehicle, and he comes running out, 
get in my truck, get in my truck. And I'm like, for what? He's like, just get in my truck. And I jump in his truck and we're going lights and sirens down the road. And I was like, where are we going? He said, there's been a murder. I'm like, you're not taking me to a crime scene, are you? He said, yes, I am. If you're going to write this, you have to experience what it's like. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I was always, I can't watch horror shows, you know, <laughs> very squeamish about anything like that, especially the sight of blood. And so, yeah, it was, it was interesting, but it was very difficult to do what I now do. It's still, it is still difficult. I, I can imagine. I know the firefighters in Hammond had a good laugh at my expense for the first big fire I went to because my eyes were watering. I was sniffling, oh, yeah. and oh, they're yeah. they're already used to it. And I'm trying to ask them questions, and I'm just having a hard time. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's it's disturbing. And when you write a book, I spend a year researching um, to write a book, and when you're that invested, you're that into it you're interviewing the victims families you're interviewing the police officers you're seeing the crime scene photos you're going to where the crimes occurred you're following the life of the serial killer it's very involved it takes me about a year to research a book before i actually sit down and write it but during that year it's constantly rolling around in your head organizing itself you know trying to figure out how best to write it and so it's a weight that you carry. It really is because you have all of the most horrible things in life running through your head at all times, you know? And so when I sit down and write it, when I finish the last word of that book and know I'm finished, it's like a big weight comes off of my shoulders because I don't have to think about it constantly. It, so yeah, it's, it's difficult to do this. I always write something inspirational at the same time just to give myself a little balance, you know, because it's such a dark place to live in. I can only imagine because you're you're right there in his point of view, following his footsteps. And did, did you did they ever kind of show you like where he wherever like Derek Todd Lee stood across from the house? I mean, so you can kind of see what he saw looking in. Oh, absolutely. And I, I tell you, the I guess the thing aside from what he did to these women, which was unbelievable i mean charlotte murray pace was stabbed 83 times with a flathead screwdriver i mean with with force it was it was just unbelievable what he did pam kinnamore was stabbed beaten almost beheaded you know he was a vicious monster and i think the thing that really showed me his personality better than anything was he lived in St. Francisville at the top of Star Hill house right there. People pass it 50 times. I mean, you know, 50 million times a day because there's cars constantly going by there. And he's right there, right out in the open, his house, <laughs> you know, where he lived with his wife and um, children. And I got to go in that house and, oh my gosh, there were, you know, footprints in the doors where he'd kicked them, you know, the walls, holes punched in all the walls. You could see the rage that he had inside of him just by visiting his home. It was unbelievable. Yeah, speaking of uh, Charlotte Murray, she gave him a good fight. She was, she was very athletic. 
And she did. She fought him from one end of that house to the other. She really fought him for her life. But he was a big man and strong. He had worked in the plants all of his life or, you know, he did different things. But he had driven trucks. He worked for a cement company. He had done many different things, but he was very strong. And she she gave him a run for his money. She did everything she could to save her life. But in the end, he just overpowered her and <laughs> just brutalized her. Yeah, yesterday when I was coming home from uh, New Iberia, I really got a new uh, appreciation for how close, or a new perspective of how close everything was to the area. Because I had to drive through Bro Bridge. I went down 31 uh, mm-hmm. between the St. Martinsville and all these other places. Mm-hmm. just. And next thing you know, I'm on 190 and airline at the same time, just realizing how close all this was for him and how easy it is to move about. Well, because of his work, um, he was very familiar with many areas around South Louisiana. Like, um, they haven't officially connected him to um, Christine Moore or Eugene Wafontaine, but. You know, Eugene Wafontaine was found at Alligator Bayou Bar in in the water next Mm -hmm. to it. Um, Christine Moore was found at the other end of that bayou by Ebenezer Baptist Church. And you have to know your way around these areas to really, you know, find them. Um, Trenisha Denae Cologne, he picked her up at her mother's graveside in Grand Coteau, and then he drove her 20 miles to Scott, Louisiana, to a remote area with a little road that most people would pass up and never even see that goes through these woods. I mean, he knew South Louisiana really well, and uh, that's where he killed her, was in Scott, Louisiana. I've been down that way, too, before, and quite a few of our uh, listeners know the area now, thanks to some of the uh, congressmen's and conferences we, that we have in that area. Oh, yeah. Over yeah. there in uh, Arnoldville. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So some, some of the people really are like, wow, that's really close to what, you know, where we're at. Oh, yeah. And I, I know what you're saying, too, about the whole, you really got to know where you're going, because my eyes were glued to my GPS, because I, I, I just too many roads to turn down on, and I was like making sure I was just staying in, and then even my GPS wasn't aware of the new circles they put in, mm-hmm. the different uh, little roundabouts. Yeah. Yeah, it's, he knew his way around. Lafayette, Brobridge, Grand Coteau, Scott, Baton Rouge, across the river. I mean, he knew his way around everywhere. And unlike Geraldine DeSoto, he worked at a plant off of Highway 1 right down from where Geraldine DeSoto lived in a mobile home park, you know. And he always watched his victims before he decided to kill them. How long did he watch his victim force before he decided he moved to move in on it. Well, interesting. Sanford Avenue, which leads to LSU. In 1997, Eugene Wafontaine, who lived on Sanford Avenue in Baton Rouge, in the same five-house radius where Gina Wilson-Green and Charlotte Murray Pace lived, disappeared by the LSU lakes. And her body was later found in Manshack Bayou by Alligator Bayou Bar. Um, it's never been officially linked through any kind of DNA, but um, 
it's pretty obvious who killed her because Derek Tudley was working in that area at the time, driving a cement truck. He took off that day. And the similarities between her and his other victims, as well as the proximity in which she lived to her other victims. To his other victims, I'm sorry. <laughs> 2001, Gina Wilson Green, Stanford Avenue. They have two houses from where Eugene Wafontaine lived. Hmm. 2002, Charlotte Marie Pace lived three houses from Gina Wilson Green's house. So he watched that same area from 1998 to 2002, four years, looking for his victims. He had a habit of going back to the same areas at times. In 1992, Derek Todd Lee killed Connie Warner. It took her from her home in Oak Shadow Subdivision in Zachary. That's 92. In 98, he killed Randy Mieberer, took her from her home, which was one block over from where Connie Lynn Warner lived. Six years later, he was back in that subdivision. Same thing happened on Sanford Avenue in Baton Rouge, returning to the same area to look for victims. Was that because he was a little bit more familiar with the area, or he knew... The, her, he knew that the people that he, or the women that he targeted, would be there. I think he w- was both familiar, and he knew these women, Connie Warner and Randy Mieberer, were single women that lived by themselves in this little neighborhood. And then Charlotte Marie Pace, Gina Wilson-Green, and Eugene Wafontaine were all single women living in their homes. Okay. He- did extensive kind of research in a way to know or knew his areas. Well, let me tell you, Charlotte Marie Pace, she moved the weekend she was killed from Sanford Avenue into a townhouse on Charlotte Avenue, closer to LSU, and he killed her in her new home. Mm-hmm. So he followed her from Sanford Avenue to her new home. And then, of course, there's Diane Alexander, who was saved by her son, correct? Yes, Diane Alexander lived in Brobridge in a mobile home and Derek Tudley knocked on her door and asked her for a phone book and a phone because he said he was supposed to do some work for some people that lived down the street. She gets him the phone book and the phone. He's outside on her porch. She's cooking lunch for her son and she goes to open the door to get her phone and phone book back and he hits her with the phone, which is how he did most of the victims that he had. He would Asked for a phone and then hit him with it. And he was in the process of raping her and brutalizing her. She was beaten bad. And when her son came home for lunch and saved her life. But that kind of tied Derek Todd Lee to Pam Kinnamore's murder because he was trying to strangle her. He had cut her computer cord and he was trying to strangle her with her computer cord. That computer cord was found where Pam Kinnamore was killed by Whis- in Whiskey Bay. Um, he had left her body by Whiskey Bay under the bridge, and that computer cord was found as evidence. And later, thanks to Lynn Marino, her mother, who said, hey, did, did, wasn't there a computer cord used on this woman? And when they matched that computer cord, matched where it was cut, a perfect match. If they didn't have the DNA evidence, would that have been built a strong enough case for 
the authorities to arrest and even convict Derek Todd Leon? They definitely could have arrested him on that, but juries nowadays have become accustomed to solid forensic DNA proof. And it's getting harder to convict murderers without it. You know, like in the book, we have Derek Todd Lee linked to 17 murders in the Baton Rouge area. During that 10-year period that he killed, there were three serial killers operating in Baton Rouge, and there were 60 missing or murdered unsolved cases of women in the Baton Rouge area. We're going to take a break right there. We're going to get back to our creature feature for tonight. Stick around. Part two of my interview with Susan Mustafa is on its way. police officers. We'd like to talk to you about those homicides that occurred last night. Maybe you can help us. Maybe you saw something. So, a couple of horny kids got themselves chopped up by some kook. So what? Besides, who really gives a damn? We do. That's why we're here. I told Van Heusen that closing down the carnival, opening this outdoor whorehouse is going to bring nothing but problems. What carnival? Van Heusen's carnival, he operated right here on this very spot for 20 years. He closed it down about 15 years ago and opened up this trash heap. I managed the place and I banked the money and I booked the films and the projections too. Do you think you appreciate all the work I do around here? I work my ass off. Van Heusen, he couldn't care less. You know what he does, huh? Son of a bitch runs off to Hawaii, leaves me in charge, doesn't even pay me half a living wage. Drains my ass, I'll tell you. So you're around the theater quite a bit, then? Mm-hmm. Ever bloody damn day and night. Van Heusen thinks I married this toilet, but I didn't, and you better believe it. I believe you, sir. I don't doubt you for a minute. Uh, have you ever seen anyone strange around here, someone you might think would be capable of something like this? Yeah, and I see him every night. Everybody that comes in here, they're crazy. And I see them all. You want to know why? Because when I get here, I gotta come in and set up this refreshment stand because that broad I got working for me isn't even smart enough to pass first grade math. And then when I leave here, I gotta go over and check the ticket. I gotta double check to make sure those flang bangers in there aren't ripping me off. I get out of there, I go to the projection room, and there I stay all night. I can't even get out of there when the movie's open. By then everybody's gone home but me. Rough light. Yeah, you bet your butt it is. Have you ever seen the victims before, anywhere, at any time? What, teenagers? Hey, ain't no difference. All one big zip with long hair. I've got two of them, Mr. Johnson. I'm sorry for you, buddy. It means teenagers, Mr. Johnson, not kids. Well, we sympathize with you, sir. You've got quite a workload. I wouldn't want to be in shape. Thanks a lot. You've been a help. I thought you said you were the only one here. That's a half-witty sweeps up around here. All the time, at night, too? He sleeps there. 
You really want to talk to that piece of puke? He works here, doesn't he? Hey, Jeremy! Get out of there! Man, he keeps him around for a charity game. All he does around here is jerk off. Not true. I work. Hey, you looking for suspects? Here, lock the geek up. Geek? I was one in the carnival. Uh, I, I lost all my teeth biting off snakeheads. And, and chicken heads, too. If I had my way about it, I'd have canned him a long time ago. How long have you worked here, sir? Sir? <laughs> His name's Jeremy. It's Garmin. The Great Garmin. Ta-da! Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest sword swallower in all the world. No, not him. He's so stupid he'd cut his own throat if I gave him a knife. Look, I gotta get to work. And you, when they get done with you, you get this place cleaned up, you understand? Mr. Garmy. Uh, Jeremy. My name is really Garmy, but my friends call me Jeremy. Do you have many friends, Jeremy? I used to. Lido and Hobo. Uh, they were the, the elephants at the carnival. Uh, but they're all gone now. What exactly is your job here, Jeremy? I sweep up, I keep the place clean. And I guard the place. I make sure nobody sneaks in. You like working here? Yes. Did you ever see anything strange, anything unusual occur here? No. Um, just the movies and the kids. But I like the kids. And Mr. Van Neusen will never let them get away with killing two young people. No, sir. Who? Whoever did it. Where were you when this happened? Uh, I found them. After everybody went home, I saw this car, and I went over there, and there they were. Um, he had his head cut off. Had you ever seen the victims before? Probably. I probably see everybody who's ever been here. But, but they weren't troublemakers. What kind of troublemakers come around here? The kind that try to sneak in. Uh, but I chase them with my flashlight. There's one guy who always takes two spaces uh, so his car won't get scratched. You used to be a sword swallower. Do you still have any of those blades? Mr. Van Heusen lets me use his private collection. Van Heusen has a collection of blades? Oh, knives, swords, all kinds. He taught me my craft. But then I had my accident. Well, where is this collection now? Do you have any of it? Oh, no. Mr. Van Heusen has it. He takes it with him everywhere he goes. I think it's in India. Mr. Van Heusen's in Hawaii. Oh, well, then that's where he is. There's one guy who comes every night, and he's a troublemaker. He never stays in one spot. He's always looking for girls or a couple that are smooching. Uh, you know what I mean. I don't like him. 
He's here every night. Almost. What's he look like? Pasty face. Skinnier than Mr. Pins in the carnival. What kind of a car did he drive? Old Chevy. <coughs> Smashed in the back. He won't listen to me when I tell him to stay in one spot. He's always moving around. How old is he? I don't know. Uh, but, but he tries to look younger than he really is. Hey, come on, wait up at that scum. Be back to work. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I know tonight's creature feature is not as frightening as this monster serial killer, Derek Todd Lee. Let's get back to our interview with Susan Mustafa as she gives us more information on the Baton Rouge serial killer. We'll go over and talk a bit more about the um, when he challenged his conviction and went up to Louisiana Supreme State Court. That Sorry. Justice Creighton said there was enough evidence here to keep him locked up that uh, his he didn't need his lawyer to tell him or tell him they needed more mental, show more mental illnesses for it. Oh, <laughs> I'm not surprised at all that Justice Creighton said that. He is an incredible, incredible man, and we're lucky to have him as a justice on the Louisiana Supreme Court. Um, he looks at the evidence, and with Derek Todd Lee, he was linked by DNA to seven different women, same DNA. Um, I'll never forget, I interviewed a lot of people in St. Francisville, where he's from, and all of them said, well, you know, I believe he might have killed one of them, but he didn't kill all of those women. Well, DNA doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't fight DNA. I mean, it is, you know, when you have a one in a quadrillion chance of, of it being anybody else on the planet, you, you just can't fight that. And you have seven women that this matches to? Mm -hmm. He he seemed like he had a good uh, that he had a good grasp on the, the the not only just the situation but the ramifications of who Derek Todd Lee was. Did you interview him? Or? No, I uh, when I looked up to see uh, what was Derek Todd Lee's cause of death, he was quoted inside the uh, that uh, the, I was either the Advocate or CBS oh, interview. Okay. Well, Scott Creighton prosecuted Nathaniel Code in Shreveport in the late eighties. Um, who murdered a whole family. He murdered three children. He murdered his grandfather and the two little boys his grandfather was babysitting. Scott prosecuted him and he got the death penalty. And that's been more than 30 years ago and he's still sitting on Louisiana's death row and our tax dollars are still feeding him. Now, were you president Derek Lee's trial, or was that... Yes, uh, okay. I was president of both of his trials. That would be his his conviction trial and then his appeal, or... No, did no he have I, two didn't, separate... I didn't go to his appeals. I went to his conviction trial with Geraldine DeSoto, and that was in West Baton Rouge Parish, and the trial of Charlotte, um, his trial for Charlotte Murray Pace in East Baton Rouge Parish. And let me tell you something. <laughs> Television cannot capture the drama in those courtrooms, I'm telling you, it was waiting for that jury to come back, which was only like an hour and a half, so it didn't take any time for them to convict him. It is such a tense time for the families. It's so emotional, you know, because they don't know. I mean, everybody thinks, okay, we've given enough evidence, but you never know what a jury's going to do. 
and waiting for that decision to come back was just, I mean, you could, it was palpable. You could feel the tension in the air in that courtroom. Um, but I'm going to tell you that whole trial, both of them, just watching the parents' faces as they described what happened, not the parents, but as prosecutors described what this man did to their children. It was, I mean, there were so many tears. It was heartbreaking. It really was. How did he react to, to all that, to the evidence and to the testimony that was given? For the most part, he didn't. For the most part, he just sat there and listened. He um, talked to his lawyer, but he didn't, you didn't see any remorse. You didn't see any shock when they put up photos. You didn't see, you saw interest when they put up photos, but that's typical of a serial killer. Derek Tidley never confessed to these murders. Till the day he died, he didn't confess. He always said he didn't do it. Um, so he, I think he'd been coached pretty well before he walked into that courtroom because he didn't have outbursts like some do. Sean Gillis, during his trial, had multiple outbursts, you know? And as a matter of fact, there was a guy who was on trial in Baton Rouge for the murder of four elderly people, Trucko Stampley. Trucko Stampley's girlfriend got up to testify, and he jumped across the desk and went after her to kill her on that stand. <laughs> it was just like, I mean, the things that go on in trials is unbelievable. But Derek Tidley pretty much sat there the whole time and just pay, paid attention, but didn't react. Did he look at you any, or did he know you were writing this book? Or No, uh-uh. Was the, book, the book came out after he was convicted, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, he was convicted in 2000. Three, and the book came out in two thousand six. And so, what what kind of um, evidence did you get and access did you get for writing this book? Um, because I was writing it with Tony Clayton, the police were very cooperative with me. Um, it's the first time I had done it, so I was winging it, you know. <laughs> so I interviewed everybody. Uh, all the police, Danny Mixon, who ultimately um, got the subpoena deuces tecum to have Derek Tidley swabbed. He had known it was Derek Tidley all along, but nobody would listen to him. And um, so I had access to some of the victims' families. Lynn Marino and I became very close during that whole process. Um, she helped me a lot with the book. Um, I interviewed. Gosh, everybody involved with that trial, you know, and it was interesting. I learned from that experience because it was my first time that if you attend the trials, that's where you meet everybody involved because they're all testifying, you know, so that was a really good thing. And I could take notes during the trials because when you have to go back and buy transcripts, it's like a dollar a page. and the Transcripts for Derek Todd Lee's trial filled up a whole wall. Wow. You know, so going to the trial and taking notes is very important. Um, just move over to um, Gerald and DeSoto. I know they, they targeted Darren quite a bit, and they, they had him as the prime suspect. After all this happened, how did his life end up? Did he 
Did he ever, did he stay in the area or? I really don't know where Darren is now. I know that he and Jerlyn had marital problems. Um, she had left a um, journal in which she described some of the things that were going on in their marriage, which is what led police to suspect Darren. But ultimately, <laughs> Darren wasn't the one that did it. And so on top of losing his wife, he had to deal with being a suspect in her murder, which I'm sure was very difficult for him. Even after he was cleared, it's probably difficult. There's still that stigma, the yes. the uh, the doubt, the lingering mm-hmm. doubt there. Mm-hmm. I wanted to move a little bit more into the the investigation side of it. What were some of the uh, mistakes that were that were made? Well, I'd like to preface that with Baton Rouge Police Department worked long, hard hours trying to solve this case. The problem was. It's difficult enough to catch one serial killer. They had three they were dealing with without realizing it. You know, you had Sean Vincent Gillis, you had Jeffrey Lee Guillory. Jeffrey Lee Guillory's targeting prostitutes in North Baton Rouge and downtown area. Sean Gillis is picking up women all over the place, some prostitutes, some not. Uh, One woman he attacked in a retirement home, one woman he ran over. As she was jogging through a nice, you know, neighborhood in Baton Rouge. Um, And then you have Derek Todd Lee, who's also going after women. He's going after them in their homes. It was hard to differentiate from all of these different victims. And you had three serial killers who did not have signatures on how they were killing. You had Sean Gillis was using a zip tie. He was stabbing them. He was beating them. Derek Todd Lee was strangling them. He was, he didn't use a zip tie, but he was strangling them with his hands. He was stabbing them. He was beating them. And you had Jeffrey Lee Guillory, who was also strangling and um, stabbing and beating. So you have three different serial killers using the same means of killing people and targeting, you know, crossover the same kinds of women. They were both killing white and black. Typical serial killers have a type. They have a signature. Mm-hmm. Baton Rouge PD was trying to find three different killers, and they had no clue. I mean, they just didn't. So with Derek Todd Lee, at a lot of the murder scenes, people were telling police they saw a white man in a white pickup truck leaving the scene um, from Pam Kenamore's neighborhood, Charlotte Murray Pace, um, Gina Wilson-Green. They did say they saw a black man a few days before outside of Gina Wilson Green's home. Um, so the police are thinking they're looking for a white man in a white pickup truck. They're putting billboards up about this. It was not until Diane Alexander that it was reported that it, this was a black man, but they hadn't connected Diane Alexander. She was in. Brobridge, Louisiana, an hour away from Baton Rouge. They hadn't connected that to this yet. And so it was when Carrie Lynn Yoder, I believe, right after she was murdered, right outside of LSU in her home on Dodson Avenue, um, that they sent the DNA they had from the victims to Tony Fredakis, 
in Florida. We're going to take another break and let that all set in right there. So I hope you enjoy this creature feature tonight here on Frightening Tales. You don't like Mr. Johnson, do you, Jeremy? He's a bully. Someday, somebody won't take that office. Does he push a lot of people around? The people that work for him. He makes me talk to the big one. Hey, you shit Yes, sir. Uh, I, I gotta go. Hey, Jeremy, when a guy comes here again, the one that keeps moving around from spot to spot? Yeah. Do us a favor and get his license number, okay? Okay. Take care now. How many people do you suppose there are like that? Like what? You know, did you do that sort of thing when you were a kid? Oh, you know, cruise the drive-in, try to pick up on the broad. Oh, yeah. Our driving just had a double murder. Yeah. You know, they may have closed that carnival, but the freaks are still hanging around, and we just talked to two of the choicest ones. Gee. Well, that other one we were talking about might be a freak, too, but I'd like to talk to him. same talk 50 times but we haven't come to the same decision you want an argument don't you i know i don't want to argue with you i i know what you i know what you're thinking and it's not that easy i realize it's not that easy but someplace sometime you're going to have to stand on your two feet and make a decision 
I have made a decision. I love you, and it's not so easy. I just can't leave my wife like that. I've got, I've got two beautiful kids. I've got, uh, I've got responsibilities. She's not. I know you have responsibilities, but you have a responsibility to me, David. How long do you expect me to wait? I've been Laura, very patient. Laura, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to. I'm telling you, you're going to have to wait. How long do I have to wait? David, you don't understand. I can't wait. What do you mean you can't wait? I mean I can't wait. Oh, the time can... has to be now. You can wait, Lori. David, I'm pregnant. What are you going to do about it? What do you mean, what am I going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Oh, boy. David, you have to make a decision tonight. You're right, you're right, you're right. Now! I'll tell Doris in the morning. I promise you I'll tell her in the morning. You're really pregnant. We're going to have to do that. Yeah. That's super. Yeah? That's really nice. You don't mind? Not at all. I think it's uh, beautiful. That's great. Oh, what's the matter? We always come yeah, never too oh, Didn't you hear that two people got killed here last night? Let's go. No, it will nothing will ever happen to come on. Oh, don't be silly. That was last night. Tonight's tonight. We're together. I love you. <laughs>
listen to the doc here, huh? She's going to uh, try to give us some idea of what we might be looking for, huh? Gentlemen, don't expect any miracles. I'll do the best I can. The toughest thing about this kind of case is that there is no overall pattern for a psychotic killer. If there is any pattern at all, it becomes an individual thing. The M.O. remains the same and the weapon is usually the same. The most important thing for you to remember is this. The time between each killing gets shorter. One other odd fact. A psychotic killer is usually a man. When a woman is involved, it's rare and it's usually for financial gain. While the male is driven by lust, by passion, and by hate. I don't have to tell you guys how important this is, huh? So call in any man you need, wherever you need them. And the doc here says that he's on call any time, all right? And keep me posted, huh? And when you get the goddamn coffee heated, So what do we got? Jeremy? Possible, but doubtful. Rule anybody out? No. We don't have any real proof on anybody. No, we got the weapon anyway. And no prints on it. Bring Jeremy in, will you? Okay, John. I wish. If there's one bust I'd like to make. It's certainly a possibility. Everybody's stuck in that projection booth all night. Yeah. What about the guy that roams around all night? I'd like to get a line on him. We're going to have to work a stake out if we're ever going to see him. Come on in, Charlie. Have a seat. Um, thank you. Thank you. Would you like some coffee? Oh, that would be good. Oh, with lots of sugar. I like lots of sugar. Jeremy, you recognize this? It was in those two young people. But I didn't touch it. Yeah, yeah I know. Foreigner didn't find your prints on it. You ever work with a sword like this? Uh, oh, yes, many times. You recognize this particular sword? No. You're sure it isn't part of the Van Heusen collection? Oh, no, I'm sure of that. I know all of them by heart. I learned with them. I worked with them many times. When you quit your act, who took over? Uh, Austin Johnson. But he was never any good. I taught him, but he was never any good. Mr. Van Heusen uh, worked with him, too. But he said he would never be as good as me. Yeah, he said that. Why not? Uh, he liked to chase the girls too much. And he couldn't keep his mind on the act. He was better as a barker. Actually, he was, he was scared of the knife. I see. So Van Heusen closed the carnival down and turned the land into a drive-in. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't it seem strange there are 
two former sword handlers, knife throwers, working at a place where four murders have been committed with swords, knives? Um, I don't know. I mean, Mr. Johnson was never any good. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I haven't seen a knife before. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't like them anymore. I, I, I don't like them. So you found the bodies tonight. What'd you do then? I, I called Mr. Johnson. Checks, he called. What were you doing before you found them? I was following uh, the guy in the park next to the car with the body. Who is he, Chairman? The troublemaker. The one that always comes and never stays in one spot. His car was right next to the murder car? He got out of one side and that's when I saw him. And then he uh, crawled in between the cars and then I couldn't see him anymore. Then he crawled out from between the cars and he went to the bathroom. Who is he? I don't know. Really, I, I, I don't know. Oh, but I, I got his license number. Uh, just like you asked me to. I, I remembered. Maybe that will help. I hope so, Jeremy. I hope so. I'll check it out. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. Let's get back to our interview with Susan Mustafa, author of Bloodbath. Tony Ferdakis had told Baton Rouge police that he could determine the ethnicity of the killer based on DNA. This had never been done before. And so they sent him Derek Tadley's DNA, but they also sent him a bunch of police officers' DNA. And they wanted him to prove to them that he could do this, and he did. When their DNA came back and he picked the ethnicity of everyone correctly, then they, they sent him Derek Tudley's DNA, and he came back and said that Derek Tudley was 85% um, sub-Saharan African. And that's when the police realized, uh-oh, we've got to totally switch around. We're looking for a black man. Years before that, David McDavid and Danny Mixon. David McDavid was with Zachary PD. Danny Mixon was with the Attorney General's office. After the Randy Meebrewer murder in 98, which they've never found her body, by the way, um, but they did find Derek's DNA at her home. Um, Randy Meebrewer, I mean, uh, David McDavid and Danny Mixon, Danny was working the cold case of Randy Meebrewer and Connie Warner and Zachary. They suspected Derek Todley. They knew it was him. They just didn't have the evidence to prove it. And so they went after Gina Wilson-Green was killed in 2001 on Sanford Avenue in Baton Rouge. They went to the Baton Rouge Police Department and said, we know who your killer is. And they handed them Derek Todley's file. And the police looked at the file and they said, our killer's white. This guy's black. And they didn't. They just totally discounted him as a suspect. There were quite a few women killed because of that single mistake. 
you know, had they swabbed him at that time. But again, in their defense, back then in 2001, that was like just at the origins of DNA and all of the, you know, forensic use it had. Mm -hmm. So it was very expensive back then to get DNA testing done. And so when they saw that Derek Tidley was black, they were looking for a white man. And so they just completely discounted him as a suspect. Amongst that, the other challenge is building a case against somebody to make it ironclad so that way they can get through. Always seems like it puts a challenge on just any case that they're trying to prove. Yes, but I tell you what. When they had this multi-agency homicide task force in Baton Rouge, I'm talking FBI, you know, state police. I mean, it was the federal government and local and state police all trying to work together. But whenever that happens, and it especially happened in this case because Derek Tudley was getting so much media attention. These murders were getting a lot of national attention. It almost seemed like they became a jurisdictional war. They weren't sharing information between, you know, jurisdictions. So you have Danae Colomb and, you know, you have Diane Alexander over here in the Lafayette area. You have these murders in Zachary. You have these murders in Baton Rouge. You know, it was like they weren't sharing information then. But again, in their defense, trying to be fair, they were dealing with a serial killer and they had no clue what to do. We'd never had that problem here before where you had so much going on at the same time. So, I would imagine having you. Did they ever. When did they realize they had three different serial killers? Um, they knew they had somebody targeting prostitutes in North Baton Rouge. I think they suspected Jeffrey Lee Guillory of about 19. Um, he was convicted. They brought three into his trial. I said through his trial, too. They brought three into his trial. Uh, I think he was convicted for Renee Newman but they used up the other ones to build their case. Um, they knew they had somebody targeting prostitu prostitutes. They didn't know, but the public didn't know about that. Um, they didn't really know that Sean Billing Vincent Gillis was out there. Um, they learned about him Like maybe a year later, I think he was arrested in 2004. We didn't hear a whole lot about that, but there, there's a reason. Most of his victims were prostitutes. And if the victims are prostitutes or women, you know, that live risky lifestyles is how they like to term, term that, um, the public doesn't hear a whole lot about it. You know, they, they knew that they had somebody killing prostitutes, but... We didn't, it wasn't splashed all over the news. You know, you, there, if they found a victim that was an LSU student, it was front page news. If a prostitute was murdered, then it was, you know, page four. And, Below yeah, the fold. Yeah, exactly. You know, so had Baton Rouge women knew exactly how many women were being killed in this city, it would have been worse than what it was. And it was pretty bad. Would uh, Derek Todd's Lee lawyer know about that and tried to use that, say, like in an appeal or uh, in the defense that, hey, you've got the wrong guy. See, the killings are still happening. No, they didn't. 
because I don't think nobody was talking about it at that time. It wasn't mm-hmm. until like a year later that we found out about the other ones. You know, nobody so was talking it was, about. It. So it was definitely after Derek Todd Lee was. Yes. So. Even though their murders were going on all during those same ten year periods, mm-hmm. you know. Well, Sean Gillis's first murder was ninety four of Ann Bryan in the retirement home across from the subdivision where he lived. She was brutally stabbed to death and attacked and beaten, raped, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was the same kind of things. The police didn't really know what exactly they had Mm -hmm. on their hands. They just knew they had a lot, you know? There was a whole lot going on in that decade. I I, I hear a lot of times on some of the other podcasts and other shows where they go into the supposed intelligence of the, uh, the the killer i know that you mentioned that he he had a low iq how much does that really factor into trying to solve the crime because i know some cops some people get the big ego he's just a dumb criminal and i know it's not for most but just the the few that do so how does the, the intelligence of the killer factor in for looking well Derek todd lee his IQ was tested numerous, several times when he was at school, and he was sometimes above and sometimes below the level of mental retardation, which is at 75, the standard level. And sometimes he was above and sometimes he was below. But he was very smart. He was street smart because, I mean, he had a wife with children. He had a girlfriend with children. He worked in plants, you know, he held jobs. He would go from job to job to job, but he was able to get jobs and hold them. He was smart enough to be able to stalk these women without being reported to the police, except for one woman in Zachary, when she went to prison for stalking her. And so he was very street smart. He didn't know anything about DNA, which back then... Most criminals didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it wasn't for DNA, he'd probably still be running around killing people right now. We're going to go ahead and get back to our creature feature for tonight. When we come back, the last part of our interview with Susan Mustafa. Good guy or the bad guy? I don't care. Tail. You got it. officers. Can we come in? What do you want me for? We just want to ask you a few questions. 
I didn't do anything. Then you won't mind if we come in. Or perhaps you'd rather have the neighbors hear us. Mr. Engelson, I understand that you were at the local drive-in theater the other night. Any law against going to the movies? No, but you were there again last night. <laughs> I like the picture. Is that all? That's all. What's this all about? Come on, Engelson. You know what went down there last night. I heard something. And you were seen parked next to the victim's car. I don't know anything about that. I didn't go to any car. I was watching a movie. You were seen going to the car, Mr. Ingelson. No, no, you don't. We have an eyewitness. You crawled out of your car to the victim's vehicle. What were you doing, pissing on the hubcaps? There were two bodies in that car. Well, not when I was there. Not when you were there. You know what that ink? You know what that is, Engelson? That's you. Yeah. That's your rap sheet, Engelson. Please, just leave me alone. How'd you work up nerve enough to do it? Huh? I didn't do anything. How'd you ram a sword through two people? That's a lie. Hey, no, oh, I didn't kill anybody. Look, I couldn't do that. I just wanted to beat my knee. Look, we're not going to get anything out of him. This way. Cool enough. Think he's soft enough for you to work with now? All right. Mr. Eagleson, have you got any knives or any swords in this house? Then you won't mind if my partner has a look around. No. Okay, Mike. Have a look. What do you do for a living? I drive a truck. Get all over town, see lots of interesting things. Not so interesting. Check, check out the chicks while I'm driving. You, uh, got quite a collection. Really interesting pictures. No, I'm just a collector. Do you like them? They're pretty good, aren't they? Yeah, pretty good. Got some interesting books over there. Who knows? They might become collector's items someday. You know, kind of like five books. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. 
We got a few of them around, don't they? Station. You got any other interesting hobbies? Just go to the drive-in a lot. It's a hobby? Well, I guess that's about all I do, you know. How did you know I was at the drive-in? Well, Mr. Engelson, you're just about like a fixture over there. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised you don't have a part-time job. Yeah, but nobody knows me. I mean, how did you know I was at the drive and Nobody knows my name there. That's all right. We knew you were there. What did you see when you were looking down into that car? I didn't see anything. You were seen going to the car, Mr. Eagleson. bad shape. Oh, yeah? She was murdered with a sword. Oh, I haven't got any swords. You sure about that? Oh, yeah. Kitchen knife? Kitchen knife? I mean, everybody has a kitchen knife. You didn't see anything strange? Just... Just me. Mr. Eagleson, my partner thinks you murdered those people. Did you? No. Can you prove it? Uh, no. Uh, uh, no. Uh, I, I won't go back to that driving, no. I, I swear, I promise I won't go back there again. Why not? Because we're on to you? I won't go back to that driving again. You don't go back. Your murders stop, and I come after you. Come on, Mike. Knock it off. I'm done. Mr. Engelson, you mind if we look through your car? Would you open it up for us? Uh, listen, could you just act like we were friends, please? I mean, the neighbors, they, they don't know about my past. Please? Yeah, we can handle that. Sure is good to see you fellas again. It's been a long time. Yeah, I'm still driving the same old car. It's really been a peach. Peach? Yeah. Screwed it up myself. <laughs> uh, you, ought, you ought to take a look in my trunk. Uh, you got a great collection of tools here. I won't get ripped off by those mechanics. Got enough to do my own valve job, ring job. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin Redman, and we have been talking about serial killers all night long. We started out with my re-ranking of the Scream movies, plus the Scream 6 review. And for most of this evening, we've been talking about Derek Todd Lee with Susan Mustafa, author of Bloodbath and Dismembered. Both books are about two Louisiana serial killers. Bloodbath is our, about our current subject, Derek Todd Lee, and his reign of terror. And then Dismembered 
is the second Baton Rouge serial killer named Sean Vincent Gillis and how he dismembered most of his victims. But let's go ahead and return to Susan Mustafa's interview. So back to the task force. Um, who formed the task force? Was that like uh, Parishwide, Baton Rouge PD? Uh, who, who put the task force together? Initially, Gina Wilson-Green in 2001 was the first victim in Baton Rouge. And when that happened, it was Baton Rouge PD investigating. But when more and more women started being killed and they linked the murders of Gina Wilson-Green, Charlotte Marie Pace, and Pam Kennemore, that's when the task force was formed because they realized at that point they had a serial killer. And so, you know, usually when it comes to, you know, a serial killer terrorizing an area, the FBI becomes involved and they created that multi-agency task force as soon as they realized they had a serial killer on their hands. And how often, or how long does it take to determine if you got a serial killer, especially one that's not leaving a signature behind? Well, with DNA, it's become a lot more easy than it used to be, um, because once DNA links three victims to the same perpetrator, then you, you, it becomes a serial killer. And then I think the final is uh, towards when he started uh, challenging the conviction when he did his uh, made his appeal. Did you and Tony and Sue get uh, nervous, or what about the area? Do you know if anybody was really aware? To cause a little bit of a panic or nervousness? No, none at all. Those cases were solid. I mean, you have Diane Alexander sitting on a stand, pointing at him, saying, that is the man who attacked me. And then you have the pictures of her face and what he did to her. And then you have, you know, they were, through a pure motion, they were able to bring in all of the victims, even though they weren't prosecuting him, but just for Charlotte Marie Pace, they were able to bring in everything that happened. And so between the, the cut computer cord that matched from Pam Kinnamore's, you know, scene of her crime from Diane Alexander's house, you had a, um, different evidence at each crime scene, but then you had the DNA tying it all together. I sat through those trials. There was no doubt, none, that 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 would ever be overturned. It was just too much evidence. And leading up to all this, I was just kind of doing research to see where where the national average on serial killers are. They're seeing as like between fifteen and twenty five active, down quite a bit from the eighties, the seventies, and eighties because the social media has got a. Um, a bigger cast a bigger net and makes it a little easier to catch would you um would you think that stat's kind of correct no or? not at all Mm-mm. no there are so many unsolved murders out there and new murders happening every single day there's no way that that it's you know i'd say 15 in louisiana maybe i mean louisiana seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers California is another one that's a breeding ground for serial killers. Um, so, no, I would absolutely say that's not accurate. Because yeah, I saw a stat that Louisiana is ranked eighth in producing serial killers in the country. That's, oh, yeah. That, that, yeah we're I, a little bitty state, you know, compared to other states in the country. And, and you know, but I think that Louisiana um, has a 
big poverty level. Um, it's kind of different from every other state in its laws and its culture and its, um, you know, we have a lot of, you know, downtrodden people here and it's a breeding ground for serial killers. But no, I would totally disagree with that national average. I, I, I saw it and then I saw the stat about Louisiana being eighth in the country. I'm going, this is something you, I didn't think that to be a good stat, even though it came from a government site. And lately, believe in government sometimes for us is. Yeah, and then even like some serial killers, you know, live in Louisiana and then move to other states like Rollins. He killed here first and, before he went to Florida. Yeah, the Gainesville Ripper. Yeah, yep. yeah. He was up in Shreveport. Yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> no. I say there's a lot more serial killers out there. Have you heard of any other ones similar to to Rollins who claim he was possessed by a devil or a demon named Gemini? Oh gosh, there are so many, so many different reasons and different kinds. Of serial killers, you know the most prolific serial killer in history was a woman, Elizabeth Bathory. Many, 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 many generations ago, who believed that if she bathed in blood, she would stay young forever. So all the peasants that came to work for her, she was a cousin to the king. So all of the peasants who came to work for her, she'd kill them off one by one and bathe in their blood. And then she ran out of peasants because she went through all of the peasants in the, build, in the village and started on lower royalty. And that's when she was stopped, when she, when she started killing the royalty. But they say she's killed over 100 women. One of the things that um, goes pretty much unaddressed is mental health and accessibility to it. Uh, one serial killer in particular carol cole could have been taken off the streets because he not only went to the cops and turned himself in saying hey i'm fantasizing about raping and killing women and he goes to his assessment and totally changes his mind during it and the doctors all say that uh, oh no there's nothing wrong with him he's not a danger to the street and what role can mental health play in catching serial killers well i'm going to tell you I think one of the great failures of our society is addressing mental health issues with people. Um, Even today, you can look at all the homeless people on the street. There's a large percentage that are mentally ill veterans who served our country. Um, With serial killers, I know with Nathaniel Code, 17, he raped a woman. And he went and told his mental health provider that he had done this. And so, and that he had um, molested young children. And he ended up serving eight years of a 15-year sentence for that rape. And the year he got out of prison, he went right back, except this time he killed, so he wouldn't leave any, any living witnesses. There are no facilities that really take care of the mentally ill anymore. All of that's just kind of been wiped out. And so the, all of these people that need help to cope with life, to, to live their lives, have no resources anymore, no place to go, no place that will help them survive. And so that's one of the reasons we're seeing so much crime and so much killing 
and everything because our society does not really take care of its people. We really don't have the manpower in law enforcement to run down every red flag or every every social media tweet or post about, hey, I'm going to shoot up this school because we see a lot yes. of the same issues with the uh, with, with red flags that you see for serial killers when they're growing up as we do for the mass shooters today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, with Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> one of his victims escaped is naked on the street in the hands of police and Jeffrey Dahmer walks up and convinces the police to give them back to him. You know, our police aren't trained. I don't think, and I'm not saying everybody, this isn't a blanket statement, but some of our police are not trained to deal with mental health issues correctly or situations that occur. You know, our police do the best job they can with the tools that they are given is what I think. I just don't think they're given enough of the right tools. And, you know, and realistically, it's hard to give them the right tools that they need because the money is spread out and so thin and turnover or cop changes uh, location, goes to a new city and creates a vacuum. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, to catch a serial killer who is hell-bent on not being caught, number one, and pretty savvy, number two, and you're looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, you, you have a serial killer in Los Angeles. You know how many people there are in Los Angeles? Finding that serial killer is very, very, very difficult. So, yeah, you, you can't blame police. They do try. But, you know, if some of these problems were addressed, mental health-wise, you know, at an early age, a lot of this stuff could probably be avoided. Yeah, we kind of seen that with the uh, the four murders up there in Idaho, where the parents and the community was getting upset, but the police department wasn't moving fast enough. And it's well, it takes time to solve crimes. We got exactly. to put evidence together. We've got to collect evidence. Again, we got to find it first. Exactly, and not only that, when they get a suspect, they can't just go arrest somebody. You know, they have to have enough evidence to stand up in a court of law, you know, and that's difficult to do. We're going to take a moment here and we're going to go back to our creature feature. You're listening to Frightening Tales. Uh, you really ought to take a...
anything. I didn't do anything. It was only a dog here. Dogs, yeah. my yeah. home was a dog. Oh, on my way home, I ran over a dog. <laughs> yeah, we know. Hey, Look, it's, uh... I'm telling you. Yeah, I right. took it to the vets. The vets, the old night vets down in Ventura. Yes, sir. Ah, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm afraid it was dog. We had to release that Orville cream. What the hell's going on here? so many times. You've seen this picture twice? in a car in this place in one night. Generate. Uh, I guess. 
Jim. Are you going to fix picture? Um, you want to go? Jim. No, not, not really. Uh, uh, I really want to see this movie. You want to watch the movie? Yeah. Oh, I'm trying to. Let me just create my own movie effects right here. Jim. You've got to, oh, this is so fantastic. You've got to, you've really got to see this. You're not going to believe it. And this is where he says, look, now listen to this, what he says. You're not going to believe it. You know all the dialogue, huh? Oh, I told you I've seen this. Oh. Come here, come here. Jim. Oh, you're missing the best part. Look, now look. Please stop flapping your mouth. Oh, my. Oh. Did you hear what he said? Uh, no, I didn't hear what he said. All right, can you take you a minute? Now listen. We can oh. see it. We can see it. Come on, or we'll do something. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful? It's trick for... Shh. Shh. You've seen this picture twice. Would you give me... Shh. Oh. What was he wanted to see this movie. You bet. I told you it was really good. Mm-hmm. And you have to see it. <laughs> Jim. Jim, listen. Jim. Jim. Get away from me, you idiot! <sighs> he bought it. I hope so. We don't need any more of that. Anything for my pension and welfare. Well, just stay on your side of the car. My God, married only two hours, and you don't want anything more to do with me. Well, could be your bad breath. Say something sweet, then. Jim! You brought me here for the wrong reason. I came here to see the movie. This is my favorite movie. I told you that. Yeah. Well, then, damn it, you watch the picture by yourself. Koch, Mr. Leary, I've been watching him, and that's him over there in the white car. Some disguise. <laughs> yeah, we know, Jeremy. Just uh, move on, okay? Oh, I don't really have anything to do. I could stand here and help you watch him. Jeremy, it's all right. We got everything under control. We're, we know where he is. Why does he dress like that? To 
because he has very unusual taste in clothes. It's a part of the job, Jeremy. It's really kind of a nice dress. What the hell are you doing up here bothering people? You've got work to do and you don't do it. I'm... Oh, you goddamn cop. Excuse me, ma'am. What the hell are you doing here? What did you do? Come in here, flesh your badge, scaring hell out of my people? Or did you pay like everybody else? It's a public theater, isn't it? And we paid. Yeah. Well, don't bother my help. He's got work to do. I want it cleaned up, and damn it, you do what I tell you. Leave people alone. Don't follow them. Go work. Yes, sir. Oh, dumbass shit here. Man, we should be halfway to Mexico by now. I agree. That's not enough to get out of here. Coast clear? Yeah, he hadn't moved. I'm in Austin and Germany. I don't see him around anymore. I gotta go take a leak. Where do I go? <laughs> Where do you usually go? In This? <laughs> Going out in the bushes. Oh, big help you are. Welcome back to Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin Rebin. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Susan Mustafa. I hope you found it very informative and a little bit of frightening. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and review her book, Bloodbath. But before we do that, let me give you a scene from the book. Water poured from the skies in the steady streams over the blue Toyota Corolla in which the teenage couple was parked. A rainy night in the Bueller Plains Cemetery only added to the romance as they fumbled with each other's clothing. The graveyard with its tombstones made of concrete covered in drooping daisies and tulips and roses was the perfect place for young love to blossom. The young boy kissed the girl as he helped her peel down her pants, first one leg then the other. Hungry for closer contact, he rid of himself of his jeans and lay on top of her in the back seat, loving the feel of her body so close to him, uninhibited by the clothing. So focused was he on the girl that he did not hear the footsteps approaching through the patter of the rain and the passionate whirring in his brain. When the door opened, he jumped up startled. He couldn't see the man, but the dome light outlined the bush axe just before it bit into the boy's scalp, cutting deeply. The girl screamed, putting up her arms to defend herself, but not before the axe raked across her leg. The axe kept coming as the young couple tried desperately to avoid its jagged edge. They were unsuccessful, the axe ravaging the boy's arms, his hands as he tried to protect the girl. The ferocious man wielding the weapon was determined to hack them to bits. So that's just a brief scene into the book Bloodbath. That uh, happens a lot later in the book. It's another reason why Derek Todd Lee was so hard to pinpoint as a serial killer, because that was outside of his M.O. That was not just a woman. There was a man involved in that one. 
So how much more of this book can I tell you that you haven't learned from the interview? Well, the book is told from the victim's point of view. It's more for the victim's families than for the glorification of Derek Todd Lee. Of course, it goes into the background of Derek Todd Lee. It goes into both trials and how the lawyers defended and prosecuted him. Even though I knew the outcome of Derek Todd Lee, I was still on the edge of my seat that, oh my gosh, he might actually get away with this trial. And that that's good writing on Sue's part. I really enjoyed that. Um, it is a little dark to read. I can only take it in chunks at a time. Uh, people who know me, I can read a book in a day, day and a half. This one took me about three weeks to read because it is just that dark. And I, I had to go do things to brighten my day back up and as kind of a prepper and home security guy, I'm going, I don't nearly have enough going on. And uh, that's what you take away from this book, is that serial killers are charming. They're the guy next door, the girl next door, because, let's face it, men are not the only ones doing the serial killing. It brings things into perspective for me that I'm not doing enough as far as teaching my daughter to protect herself. I'm not doing enough to teach my wife to protect herself. So that really kind of say you need to step up your game. And that's kind of why when Sue mentioned in her interview that they were writing articles for women to get self-defense or how to help each other. Because let's face it, just because you have a big, strong guy is not going to, is not always going to be a deterrent. When we come back to Danny Rollins, the Gainesville Ripper, one of his victims was living with a strong dude as a deterrent. And that did nothing. So, because if you really want to protect yourself, you got to understand what evils people are capable of. And Derek Todd Lee's book, or this book, Bloodbath, is a great example of that. And then when you get into Dismembered, you're going to learn that there's even a whole new level above Derek Todd Lee. And these are the things that you have to prepare for. Well, that concludes tonight's episode of Frightening Tales. I'm your host, Justin Redman, and Tommy will be back next week. I can't wait to hear how his hunt for the Honey Island Swamp Monster with Burgers President Igabob Crane went. So until next time, I'll see you then. Bye.